Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. On this episode of No Really I'm Fine, you're going to hear Dan Kay's compelling story. He talks about his rocky childhood and how it led him to such a dark place he tried to take his own life twice. Suicide remains one of the biggest killers for men under the age of 45 and it's stories like Dan's that helps bring inspiration to others. Before we start, some of the content of this episode is quite distressing. But if you're struggling, there is help and support out there. You can text SHOUT to 85258 for free 24-hour crisis support services. You'll also hear later in the program about other organisations you can get help and advice for in a time of crisis. So today I'm joined by Dan Kay, who is a live content editor for sport for the Liverpool Echo. Is that right? That's correct. <laughs> I've worked with Dan for the last two and a half years. I've had the pleasure of, I should have said. I remember. I actually remember, I think, um, you when I first came to the Echo... You were probably one of the first people I spoke to because I remember if you remember in the old office, yeah. your desk, our two de- banks of desks were right next to each That's other. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, I remember saying, "This is Dan." I remember you were probably one of the first people I met. So we always start a podcast by asking our guests uh, the same question, and we always say, "Are you really fine today?" Um, so Dan, are you really fine today? Yeah, I am. I've had I've had a good day so far. And, in, and I guess in, is that mentally or just actually just having I've had a good day. <laughs> It's a bit of both. Um, I think part of it as well is that in preparation for this, um, you know, I did a little bit of thinking and writing around it. And, you know, as we'll probably get into, I, you know, I kind of find it quite therapeutic. Stuff that's kind of been bouncing around my head for, well, probably more than 20 years, which is when my kind of most severe experience of it happened. But to actually see it in black and white and realise that it's a story, it's my story, mm. And and I'm um, you know a, a fair chunk of the way down the path from it now, um, kind of made me feel quite good, even if I was up till about three o'clock in the morning writing it, and then oh, up really? early as well this morning, so I'm a bit tired. I know, yeah, because it's I was, Friday as well. So that was <laughs> yeah, I should I should say what I did was uh, um, for, for those listeners, I did ask um, Dan to just write a bit about your story because I remember I just saw on World Mental Health Day you posted something in a, yeah. and it was quite profound and like it was and I'm guessing a, a big thing about this podcast and. Um, earlier this week, we were um, nominated for a Mind Media Award, and um, we didn't win, but we, you know, we were happy to be nominated. But the and rightly <laughs> so, and deservedly so, I should add. The but it was so lovely, and not just lovely, but some you know sometimes a bit harrowing, and sometimes actually really sobering to listen to lots of people's stories, and and it's so brave that that's probably the most brave thing to actually hear people share their stories about mental health because a few, you know a good few years ago these things weren't, weren't talked about. Well, 100%, and I agree with that massively. It, slightly correct you, Michael, it was actually, it was suicide, World Suicide Prevention Day. Oh, sorry, what did it, I say? Well, <laughs> I think it's mental, World Mental Health Day. And obviously th- there, are, there are a number of these kind of designated days throughout the year now. And, and I think that's a great 
a great thing because it makes it, it gives people that opportunity and maybe gives them that little bit more freedom to to say how they're feeling to share their experiences and and if it helps one person in my view it's worth doing so and over the last couple of years like i say there's been a few of them and i certainly haven't posted anything on all of them and so, you know, maybe sometimes i have I've maybe just shared a nice meme or a nice thought the reason i wrote what i wrote that day was because i I've, uh, this, the new role I'm doing at work at the moment is I don't start work till three o'clock most days. So I was having my breakfast, you know, nine, ten o'clock or whatever, and just looking at Twitter. And I'd seen that it was that it was that day, Suicide Prevention Day. And, you know, I thought, didn't really give it much further thought at that point. And then I saw two posts in particular from people I knew uh, or were associated to detailing their own experiences. And both of them really kind of, like, shocked and saddened, but kind of inspired me as well at the same time. Because there's certainly one person that, that I knew had had some difficulties, but I, I wasn't aware that how, how recent it had been and how severe it had been. And it, it just got me thinking, well, wow, these people have been prepared to spit, stick their head above the, parapet, above the parapet. A couple of close friends would know the kind of finer detail of my experience, but not many. And I just kind of thought, if they're prepared to kind of bear their soul like that, then maybe it's time that I did. And it, it, on that kind of basis of if this helps one person, if, if this encourages one person to to think, wow, I'm not, it's not just me, I'm not the only one, then it's worth doing. And to be honest, I was, <laughs> at one point I almost regretted doing it because the reaction that I got, particularly there's so many lovely, mm. really kind comments, it, it maybe it really moved me and touched me. And for a kind of a second, I kind of thought, God, I hope people don't think I've done this just for attention. I know, yeah, I quickly, you know, slapped myself around the head and disabused myself of that notion. Um, but that that made me realise that, you know, this is this is a live current, these are live current issues for many, many people. And even if I'm in many ways, I'm kind of quite a traditionalist, and there's a lot of aspects in life. I kind of, you know, often joked with my pals in the past, often in a footballing sense, God, I wish we'd been born 20, 30 years ago. One way I'm glad I'm born in this era, and I will probably get on to it, and we'll be going on to talk about my family history, is that one of the massive positive points about the society that we live in now is that not all, but a large, certainly a hefty chunk of the stigma attached to mental health has now been eroded away. You still get idiots out there going, oh, just toughen up, man up, whatever. But as every day, week, year goes by, those kind of ignorant voices, I wouldn't say recede into the background, but just stand out as the kind of, as the ignorance that they are. It's interesting as well, because what you're saying about that that man up culture and things mm. like that, that is so prominent in the, the world that we well you live in in sport you know for those that don't know you're one of our core voices on the blood red podcast which is another podcast that we do for those who probably don't know it's the fifth biggest footballing podcast in the uk so you reach a lot of people and you know like to hear you sort of we're going to talk about that you know for, to hear people like you and people have obviously we know christian as well um who's yep. been on this podcast and is also on the blood red podcast as well they've spoke he's spoken about his experience as well and i think it i mean what you to write what you're saying there it's people who who have that leap of faith to do that that you know that makes makes it all worthwhile 
I, I think I think also as well, I think particularly for fellas, I think particularly in kind of like an area like football, I think particularly in a city like Liverpool, I think there's, there is a certain kind of machismo element to it, like never show you weakness, put up a brave front, tough it out type thing. But it's been very noticeable to, noticeable to me. And I say really only in the last 18 months, within kind of like the Liverpool footballing context, there's been um, reasonably high profile. We, we've certainly covered it in the Echo. Um, there's, you know, there's various fan groups surrounding Liverpool FC. And sadly, there's been a number of instances in the last couple of years where young, match-going lads um, have been putting up a brave face in front of the mates when they're going the game and having a laugh or whatever, but they've been dealing with significant problems. And sadly for some of them, it's been it's proven too much for them. And they've taken their own lives, which has left their friends and associates and obviously families devastated. And in the last year or so, there's been a couple of high-profile kind of gigs and su- efforts to kind of support that and make people just realise that you know that they, that they can that there are receptive ears and, and friendly faces and people that they can talk to. Further to that, literally in the last month. Um, through people that I've kind of got to know through my work. I mean, I've, I've been working with the Echo nearly 18 years now. Um, through people I've got to know through working in the city. Probably a slightly older age group, 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, it, 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 he won't mind me saying it. It's, it's the lad that runs the local charity an hour for others, Kevin Morland. He's set up a private Facebook group in the, literally in the last month, I would say. I think he's just called it Lad Support Group because, again, I think there was a, tragically another suicide from nobody either you, but a well-known face around... And he's decided to set up this group for, for lads to share stuff and talk to each other and to kind of, you know, be a, a shoulder to support each other. And so this, you know, these two incidents in particular says to me that the tide is definitely turning. And those kind of ignorant, brain-dead voices that have, you know, that obviously don't understand the concept of empathy or walking a mile in someone else's shoes, thankfully they are being given less, less and less credibility as time goes by and people are realizing that you know it's it might be a cliche but it's okay to not be okay and and it's interesting it's really great to hear that coming from this football culture which in the past I mean for me as you know I've never felt that when I was younger I was able to get into the footballing world because it was a massively laddie space and I'm not a laddie at all like you know like not your traditional you know I'm not traditionally you know your traditional you know offer a pint like that's not me but you know the you know I've found in the last few years I've been actually been able to come into football and 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 it is these sort of things which makes football more of a of a wider picture of it's not just about these lads kicking footballs it's actually it's a whole culture of of bigger things. Well, it's, it's football, you know, is so culturally significant. You know, I, I've I've often thought it's kind of like it, it. I've described it before as a metaphor for life. I think it it can also be seen sometimes as a barometer of society, and what you see in life is often reflected in football. And the fact that there is now an awareness that this is a, it's it's one of the biggest. I don't know the exact stats, but you know, suicide is one of the biggest killers of young men under. 2530 it's yeah it's the it's the is biggest. it is it the biggest yeah. yeah 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 i thought it was and i'm not going to say it's all preventable because you know everyone's story is different mm-hmm. people have you know through my own professional career which it, it's it, parts as as, enco-
reporting on Hillsborough, life can be unbearable and 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 and, and create un, uh, you know unimaginable weights for people to carry on their shoulders. And it's it's entirely understandable why for some people it's just too much for them to bear. But at the same time, the hu- you know humans have an incredible capacity for resilience. And I think sometimes it's just a case of realizing that and remembering that and finding a way to tap into it. But it's easier said than done. And it's a f- very much so easier said than done when you're not in the midst of it. Now, this, this is a really weird way of getting to talk about you more and your mental health past. But forever I've that I've known you, you're a massive Liverpool Football Club fan. There is... It's infamous that whenever you do an LFC quiz, like no one can get a full yeah. things out of that. <laughs> when did you start? Go if we're going to go back. When did you start this love affair with Liverpool Football Club? Because this is really not anything to do with mental health. But I'm just. I think it, it's a nice way to. Liverpool to Football go. Club have had an effect on my mental health. Like, there's no getting away from that. By the way, um, I think it's it's not impossible, but I think it's quite difficult to be born and grow up in Liverpool without being touched by football. Now, some people more than others. Um, my father was a, was a, a, a massive Everton fan. Um, he was part of a generation that would go to Everton one week, Liverpool the next, uh, which is very commonplace in the, in the 40s, 50s and 60s, le- less, less so now. Um, and to be honest, for as long as I can remember, football has been a constant in my life. Um and I suppose as as we'll get on to, once my kind of my own personal situation started to change, you know, at quite a young age, at the age of seven, when I, when I went away to boarding school, I think football became in many ways a kind of glue that kind of like gave me a constant through life, you know, no matter how much turmoil and uncertainty was going on in different aspects. Football was always there, win, lose or draw, there'd be a match on a Saturday from August to May, the season would would happen. Um, but also, you know, particularly in a city like Liverpool, it, football is 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 woven into the fabric of the city, into many many parts of the city, into people's work life, their family life, their social life, mm. um, and it can lift you up to the skies, it can drag you down to the gutter, but you know, it, in a wider sense, people have often, football is sometimes described as the opium of the masses. We do live generally in a, in a more secular society now, whereas, you know, 100, 200 years ago, the churches were the centre point. And I think it, it's that idea of being part of something bigger than yourself, mm-hmm. bigger than your own day-to-day worries, fears, anxieties, whatever. When you go to the match, you're with all, you know, four, tens of thousands worth of strangers, but you've all got this shared common goal, mm-hmm. hopes, dreams, aspirations. And it's escapism to, to to a certain degree, but it's but it's more than that. And it, it you know for a lot of us in the city, it, it goes right to the core of who we are. And for you, football at that age really was an escapism. Is that right? Well, uh, yeah, I I I, th- I think it's probably fair to say that. So, you know, so so to give a little bit kind of a, a bit of a brief background, um, I've, I have a long family history of of, of mental health. Um, my late mother, um, her life was pretty much ravaged by it. Uh, she was born right at the end of the Second World War, April 1945. By all accounts, it was a very long and difficult labour with my grand- with my grandfather, who was uh, at the time a medical officer, went on to become a GP. He was away serving some, some 
my grandmother was fit on her own. She, she, she had four sisters and family around her. But it was a very long and difficult labour that, that it we think probably did have some kind of impact on her. Um, she had what would probably these days be called something like a personality disorder. Although obviously such diagnoses didn't exist in the late 1940s, early 1950s, by which stage, you know, as she got into kind of the old childhood, it was becoming clear that to, to my, my, my maternal grandparents, never really knew my paternal ones, that something wasn't uh, quite right. And, um, you know, my, my grandfather, I think, was probably 24, 25 when he was demobbed in 46, 47, came straight back, was given a huge GP, GP practice in, in Wallasey to, to get on and run. So, and he was, he, he was very much kind of part of that kind of old school. His mother was a... Um, so I'm from, my, I'm, my, I'm from an Orthodox Jewish background. Both sets of great-grandparents came from Russia in the late 1800s, um, escaping the, the pogroms when the, the kind of fiddle in the roof type era, mm-hmm. when they were kind of run out of there. And so I think it was an, an anathema to him at, at the start, certainly. He wouldn't have known how to deal with it. His was part of that generation where you just got on with it. You didn't moan, you didn't grumble. They had all kinds of deprivation and hardship. But obviously after the war, people, you know, the people fought this six-year war for a better life, for a better future. Um, so as, as my mum got older, obviously he used all the medical options at his fingertips, you know, his colleagues who in psychiatry or whatever. But they were never kind of able to ever really pinpoint exactly what, um, what my mum's issues were. The phrase that was often used to me when I was growing up was that she was just a little bit inadequate. She was well-meaning. She loved the bones of me but she wasn't able to be a mother to me, the, the mother to me that she would have wanted to be. Um, it, sorry, it is interesting you saying that it was your granddad, that your grandfather that actually saw this and he actually, even even having those traditions, mm. that he still was like, actually, there's maybe something we could do here on the sciencey side that could help with that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I would imagine it was something that, both grandparents, you know, kind of observed. I mean, and she, she, she was the eldest child. That they had, a, they had another, son, they had a son, my uncle Stephen. Four years later, they only had two children. Interestingly, in in later, well, in later life, he's actually been. He'll probably never listen to this. He, he's. <laughs> he, I, I, I don't know if I should say it, but I'm going to. He's actually been uh, diagnosed with a form of Asperger's. Well into his sixties, mm-hmm. and it, it was quite interesting to find that out. Anyway, I, I, I don't have this, as, as we'll probably go on to discover, my, my maternal grandparents were, I wouldn't be sitting here now, but for them. But, and, and, and they're both gone now. Both, both, lived well in, both lived well into the mid-90s and both passed within a year of each other in the last couple of years. Um, but I, but as obviously, as I got old and we talked about things a bit more, I think they both, particularly my grandfather, who was, you know, he was, was a man's man. He was an old school hard ass, basically. Um, would admit that he probably didn't handle things as well as he might have done in hindsight. But he was a young man who, who was, you know, this. I don't, I don't have children, but um, there's no, there's no handbook to parenting, is there? And particularly when you've got challenging children, and particularly, you know, now you've got all manner of help and support. There was nothing like that back then. They might have done things better or differently, but rightly or wrongly, I've never been in any doubt that everything they did, they did for what they thought were the right reasons. And I would, you know, I would never dispute that. You said you're, you wouldn't be here without your maternal grandparents. And that was because your your mother and your father were were unable to take care of you. Yeah, right? and, and particularly once I, when I had my own kind of breakdowns 
in my kind of late teens, early 20s, their support and love and guidance then um, was beyond priceless. Mm-hmm. And, and particularly, you know, it took me a while to kind of get myself back on track. And um, there's a couple of incidents w- w- which we'll get onto, which, which I think, you know, very much prove that, you know, they, they, I, I can't put it any simpler than that. I, 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 re- I think it's no exaggeration to say I, I would not be alive at, at this point in my life, but for them. But to just go back, just to kind of, I think it's important to go into a bit of the history so to understand kind of everything that followed. So she, um, she had a difficulty with my, uh, my mother, but um, and, and she was never able to really hold on hold on to a job. She, she I think she did train to try and be a nurse for a while. I do remember her talking about how much she enjoyed working with uh, disabled and handicapped kids and what a lovely nature they had. Mm. But she had it was this kind of thing where she could start something but not really see it through and not really finish it. Um, but obviously, but one thing she did manage to accomplish was to meet my father and obviously have me, because otherwise I wouldn't be sitting there. Of course, um, her greatest for maybe. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And to be fair, I think if she was here, she'd probably say that. Probably did to me face years ago. Um, my old man probably probably had a similar type of condition, but not probably not as severe. And he he was able to work and had a career in local government, trained to be a lawyer, didn't quite pass his finals, and worked for Merseyside County Council, and then and then Nosley after that. So I was born, uh, they were married in 69. They, they, by all accounts, they did have quite a lot of trouble conceiving. And, and my uncle, the, who, my mum's brother, who went on to be a GP himself, um, sometimes <laughs> tells me and makes me cringe about how he <sighs> helped educate them on how they might best conceive. So it, it was eight, in, seven and a half, eight years after they were married that I came along in 1977. But... <laughs> And my grandparents always felt at the time, you know, as thrilled as they were, they were concerned that, they, you know, they could barely look after themselves. How would they be able to look after me? And sure enough, by the time I was about seven, there was apparently a danger of me being taken into care. So that's when my grandparents stepped in and basically paid for me to be privately educated. They were uh, in their late 50s, early 60s then. My grandfather, I think, was still working. I think he retired in... 1987, uh, so there was no way that they could really have brought me up. So, and, and it, it wasn't any kind of like, sometimes I have a bit of banter with, when it comes out that I went to posh schools, public schools, that oh, it must be a Tory, it must <laughs> be a posh family. Even though obviously my grandfather was a doctor, so yeah, we had a bob or two. Both his children went to state schools. It certainly wasn't, it wasn't an ideological choice. It was the only choice really, the practical choice. Um, so... Initially, I went to uh, a boarding uh, prep school over the water in Hoylake, uh, which was good because, you know, they lived in New Brighton, so it was very close to there. I could come, I would be home, not every weekend, but most weekends. And then by the time, and then uh, once I completed that, I went to uh, Clifton College, which is a public school in Bristol. The main reason I went there was because at the time, it doesn't now, it had a, a Jewish house. And even though they, they were never massive, you know, superly religious, but they were very much culturally religious and quite anglicised, but yeah, I'd say anglicised orthodox. You, know, you observed the, the, the high holy festivals, as, as we call them. And the school in Hoylake was very much a Christian school. I, for the majority of the time, I was, I was the only Jewish kid there. Probably the only Jewish kid to have ever sung the solo of Once in Royal David City at the Christmas Carol concert. <laughs> so it was, it was important to them. And, and I'm glad that they did it, that at least yeah. I had a, a grounding in my religious heritage. And it, it, it was important to me, not just when they both passed away in the last couple of years, but when my father passed away nearly 10 years ago and my mum 22 years ago, that I was mm-hmm. able to say what we call the, the, the mourner's Kaddish for them, the, the special morning prayer that you say 
in the immediate aftermath and then on the annual anniversary. So what what you've had there is you're you're seven years old around that is that right? Seven eight years old. I was uh, September eighty four. I went to Kingsmead in Hoylake, so I was seven. Yeah. So I mean you're you know you you're not even into sort of these are supposed to be like the best days of your life. You kid, your childhood. Well, they certainly were for me. But you know, like the the in this time you've already had such a a massive you know a, a lot of stuff has happened, and yeah. not only that, you've now got this situation where your life is split into two and three areas where you have your your you have your family life with your mum and dad with your grandparents and your boarding school life and yeah. and you're sort of split into these three things and that could you know that, that's not a great thing for someone who's young no and i think you know i look back on it now and i think in many ways it was inevitable that what happened further down the line was going to happen at the same time i don't know if there was anything that could ever have been done to avoid that mm. And, you know, it was absolutely, it was an unconventional childhood and adolescence, probably with you know, what could be described as traumatic aspects to it. At the same time, I'm very, I'm acutely aware that in many ways it was a very privileged childhood, particularly, obviously, like I say, because of my professional work. And I've, I've got to know and become very close to some people who have suffered general, you know, genuine, unimaginable trauma as as kids, as teenagers as adults whatever so i'm always very conscious to, to put that in perspective and even if you know i would you know I, i'm pretty sure i was the youngest kid i, I don't think there was any other seven-year-olds where when i went to kingsmead um I, i'm pretty sure i was the youngest one then and you know i can't pretend that there weren't times when it when it was difficult and lonely and sad at the same time both and and the same would apply to the to, to the second place clifton as well on the other hand, it also gave me some incredible experiences, um, particularly in kind of like sport and drama and music. And, you know, and I did all right academically and, and as well as making, you know, some some you know great friends, you know, a couple of whom I'm still in touch with, you know, decades later. Um, but, you know, yeah, you're exactly right. It, it was almost like I was living three separate lives, one at home with my mum and dad during the school holidays when they would basically let me say, do, eat, whatever I want, tell me how wonderful it, how wonderful I was. You know, there were times almost, certainly as I got a bit old, almost into my teenage years, then the times when it was almost like I was the parent and they were the child. Um, then a kind of like a second aspect to home life when I'd be at my grandparents, where they would be, and it must have been difficult for them because they didn't want to, you know, slag my, you know, their own child, my own parents off mm -hmm. to me. But they obviously had to show me that their way wasn't really the right way. And made it very clear that, listen, you know, your mum and dad adore you, they love you, but you have to have some discipline, you have to have some order, you have to have some structure in your life. Because otherwise, when you get older, that's whether you like it or not, that's the way the world works. And if you don't have an appreciation of that and are able to handle that, then there's, there's nothing down for you. And then it's basically trying to guide me in the aspects of life that my very, very well-meaning parents were sadly unable to. And then the third aspect of it was when I was away at boarding school, which, like I said, at the time was a brilliant experience. And, you know, I, I, I said, don't have children. I hope, I hope I do one day. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say absolutely I would want my kids to be, to be uh, educated that way, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out either. Mm. I, think, I think it's horses for course. I think it depends on the circumstances of the children themselves, your life, your situation, whatever. But, it, you know, as... As good an experience though it was at times, 
it did also produce or create a kind of conflicting dynamic of, on one hand, when I was there, I was kind of like the scruffy ass scouser. Um, and it's all the, you know, these posh, you know, it's, you know, it's a lot of it's national kids, children of, you know, businessmen and MPs and sports stars and all kinds. And then I'd go home and I'd be the kid who went to posh school. So there were times when, and I don't think this is true, I think, you know, there were times where it def- definitely fitted in because I look at what I accomplished. But there were definitely times when I felt that kind of I didn't really fit in anywhere. So this perhaps inevitably reached or reached ahead when I was leaving school at the age of 18, 19 in the summer of 1996. Now, a further kind of complicating factors of this was that um, I managed to get a minor scholarship to go to this this, this, this secondary school, this public school in Bristol, um, because, you yeah, know, the fees were extortionate, particularly in the Jewish house with kosher food and everything. So a, 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 scholar, a scholarship to, for, for one of these schools is essentially a, a, a pretty tough exam, but, you know, basically a GCSE standard exam that you take at 13. And obviously GCSEs you do normally at 16. So generally you've got to be pretty, very, very bright to do it. Now, I was all right, you know, steady B, probably steady B plus A minus stream, but I certainly wasn't Oxbridge material or A star. And because it was, because I'm a late, a late May birthday, um, and, and this kind of thing, I don't know if it still happens, but it wasn't unusual for this to happen. You could basically repeat the last year at prep school so that, you know, to basically to do your extra work, to give you a better chance of passing this exam that, that normally 16-year-olds take. So, but, but what that meant essentially was, uh, you know, and I managed to get in, but what it meant was that I didn't take my, the, you know, the bulk of my GCSEs till I was 17, and I didn't do my A-levels till I was 19, which is obviously a year later than most people at 16 and 18. So this meant I felt under kind of pressure, and it, I should say it was self-imposed pressure. There was never any from my grandparents or my parents to go straight to uni. I, d- I don't know why I convinced myself that kind of like, oh, you know, you can't start uni when you're twenty. I mean, obviously now some people don't start uni till they're forty. Well, yeah, and, and if that's what suits them, then then fine. Um, and but you know, I felt no, I, I can't take a year. I've got to go straight to uni. And there was a whole, as is often the case, it was kind of like a perfect storm, as well as kind of like the the things that had been bubbling under the surface for years. Um, in the February of that year, my mum passed um, at the age of 50 after a heart attack and being stuck on a, a trolley in the Royal Liverpool Hospital under the last year of the 17-year Tory reign between 79 and 97. So she, she passed in the February at the age of 50. I had a bad breakup with um, probably the first girl I properly fell for. Um, 17, 18, 19, I was indulging in going out, drinking heavily, taking recreational drugs, and that that um, that got out of hand. Uh, and as I say, the foolish decision to go straight to Leeds University and start a degree course on something called international relations, which basically one of the lads I was at school with, who lived in Marbella and had this you know, fantastic high flying life, thought it sounded dead good, and and I allowed myself to be convinced he wasn't doing it, but I allow I you know. I was—I think it was just basically desperate for something to stick my hat onto because I didn't really know what I wanted to be. Um, so a combination of all these factors meant that by things were spiraling badly out of control at the end of that year. You know, your first week, your first couple of weeks at uni should be your know, freshers' week should be the biggest happiest time of your life, and I just felt like the biggest fish out of water. I just kind of—I just couldn't adapt i couldn't you know i made a couple of friends but really friends that we were just indulged in drug taking together 
and barely went to a lecture. And by the, the start of December, I knew that if I had, you know, I couldn't even begin to take any, whatever exams I would be have coming up at the, you know, at the start of the next year or whatever. And I just found myself spiraling badly out of control. Uh, so in the first week of January 1997, uh, the week before my late mother's stone setting, uh, the Jewish tradition is we don't actually put the headstone up until six, nine, 12 months afterwards. It's almost like a second mini funeral. So that was also looming on the final, looming, looming on the horizon, something that I just couldn't face. I, with the remnants of the, my student loan, basically ran away to Amsterdam without telling anyone. Uh, and, you know, it, the biggest regret of my life really is the, the grief and the torment that I would have put my, uh, my grandparents and my dad, who were, you know, not even a year after the, the passing of my mother, still grieving that themselves. And I put them through hell because of that. And, and it's, you know, I, I can't turn back the clock. I do have a sense of gratification that, thank God, they all live long enough for me to kind of get myself back on track and actually be able to help and kind of support, particularly my grandparents, support them in their kind of later years, in the, in the, in the 90s when they needed it. It's interesting what you were saying there about, you know, like you felt you actually might have gone to university a little bit too early and things like that. Did you think, you know, were there pressures around you? Because this is something we hear quite a lot. Is Only that, societal you know, pressures, I would say. Uh, you know, and I can't ever remember my grandparents saying, you've got to go and be a... I, th- I mean, there's always a, th- a thing, I, th- I think in Jewish families, I think Asian families are quite similar as well. If you're of reasonable intelligence, you're expected to try and be a lawyer or a doctor. But I don't know if that was ever explicitly said. But in terms of like my studies, and obviously bearing in mind everything that had happened, you know, the kind of you know unusual childhood that I'd had. Mm. If I'd come to them and said, "Listen, once I've done my A levels, and particularly after my mum died in the February, if I'd said, right, I'm going to go travelling for a year,' I'd, I, I, I know there wouldn't have been a problem. You know, looking back now, it was foolish. It was stupid. You know, I think there would have been total understanding on all parties if I decided no, I need a bit of time out. But for whatever reason, I convinced myself there's no, I'm already behind the eight ball. Most mm. people do eight GCSEs at 16, A-levels at 18. I'm already a year behind. And it was, you know, it was, it was a, it was, a, it was a costly error, but I don't think, I don't think the most significant error was part of it. It's interesting because you say, oh, just societal pressures. Well, actually, for some people, mental, you know, societal pressures can be the biggest factor mm. with their mental health conditions as well, which... Well, I think particularly now with the advent of social media and kind of, you know, what a what a all-encompassing role it plays in so many of our lives. Obviously, it wasn't a thing then. There was no social media in, in, in the mid-1990s. There wasn't even internet. I, I don't think I got on the web till about 98, 99. You were saying there about your, your mum and when, when she died, mm. that obviously it's, all ha- it's like it all happened at once for you then. Yeah. So, so you basically deciding I'm off to Amsterdam. That we've had, I've had a few guests on the show who have said that when they've had a bad period of trauma or anything like that, they've just gone, no, I need to physically move themselves somewhere else. Yeah, I, th- I think I kind of felt, you know, all I know they'll be upset, but I think they might be better off in the long run because all I'm going to bring them is more disappointment. Um, I'm never going to be, I I think it's probably fair to say, and to be honest, it's something that my uncle said. Maybe it was never expressed explicitly. And to be honest, I don't blame them for it because I think it's the most natural thing in the world. But I think there was maybe an expectation on me to kind of make up for me, mum. Because my my grandfather 
was one of uh, five sons um, from a, you know, a, a, his mother came over from Russia at 14, couldn't read or write, managed to set up quite a, a very successful furniture company that used to advertise on the telly in the Northwest when I was a kid called Walden's of Burnley. They, they were all kind of high achievers. And he was, you know, he was quite, you know, very, very bright, like very bright kid, you know, um, obviously studied to be a doctor and, and had a very successful medical career. So I think, that, you know, maybe I kind of felt a pressure that I've got to succeed, I've got to make up for that and I'm never going to be able to do it. So that, that may well have been one aspect of it, but I, I don't think it'd be right to say it was the main aspect of it. But it was a, it was probably a piece of the pie, certainly. Um, so, yeah, so I, uh, I buggered off to Amsterdam, um, basically with the intention of spending the rest of my student loan getting stoned, but the end point I travelled with the with the goal of killing myself with pills. And, and you know, when I, I, I took a, you know, however many packets of paracetamol it was. I was away about three weeks, uh, and I did try to take an overdose. Um, memory's fairly hazy, because, you know, off my kite on, not just, uh, probably hadn't eaten for a few days, but at that point as well, weed and, and, and the pills themselves. I, I'd basically booked into a hotel under, under an assumed name, paid for, you know, the room for whatever period of time, and obviously eventually the money runs out, and, I, you know, my rationale was, well, I, you know, that won't be my problem, I'll be dead by then. But obviously I wasn't, so at one point I have a vague recollection of the door being broken down. I think I was so deranged by that point, I kind of thought maybe I'd descended into hell. And I do remember having a vague recollection of swinging a punch at someone. But anyway, the next thing I knew, I woke up in a Dutch prison cell. Um, and yeah, probably fairly quickly realised, well, woke up to the reality that um, I hadn't committed suicide. My little plan had failed, and now... I was just some unknown fella in some Dutch prison cell. And um, I'd, I'd say I'd been staying under a false name. And, you know, in one of those wonderful ironies of life, particularly obviously bearing in mind the way my life's gone, the way my career's gone, mm. I was actually identified by a copy of the Liverpool Echo newspaper that was in my bag that had taken. I must have bought a copy on when I, when I flew over. Obviously, there had been, you know, a big appeal for me. I was reported to the police, um, that had, that had gone missing by my obviously frantic and distraught family. Um, I had people looking everywhere for me. The police even went, I did, it was my second year as a season ticket holder. They actually even sent um, police to to my seat at Anfield looking for me. Uh, Miss Jamie Carragher's first game is a goal on his debut against Aston Villa, which has always been a little regret, but there you go. Um, I even heard my own my own appeal, my own national missing persons appeal on the radio one night because I, you know, I, I had a radio with me and I'd listen to the football and whatever. And that was, that was a, you know, wow, surreal moment. I, 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 I don't, can't really think of a better word to describe it. I suppose there was a part of me even then that thought, God, your fright, your family, your friends at home, they'll be, they'll be going spared. You could end this, make it better now, go home. But I just couldn't, I just, I, you know, I, I didn't want to live anymore. Mm -hmm. it, it just felt too hard, too, too difficult. And did you feel it? You know, because because you'd had that so much love and support from from your your, your fam your your parents and your grandparents that that was something that was maybe subconsciously or whatever holding you on. Um, I knew I knew it was there. I knew how devastated they would be. But I, you know, and I don't think it's an uncommon thing in my experience of you know listening, talking, hearing about people's mental health experiences you know, you're able to convince yourself that they're better off without you, that their short-term anguish 
will lead to a better life in them in the long run without having to put up with your shit. Can I say that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that's, I think that's probably a fairly common thing with suicidal tendency and suicidal thoughts. Um, but anyway, you know, I woke up, um, I, th- I can't remember exactly how it played out, but you know, I, I admitted it. I think they, they said, are oh, you so-and-so? We'd found this this Liverpool newspaper, and I admitted it and coughed to it. And, uh, you know, and, and, and they, were, they were very nice. And, you know, once they realised I wasn't just some lunatic trying to, trying to kill people in, a, in, a, in an Amsterdam hotel room, they, were very, they obviously realised I had big problems. And, and I think within six, 12 hours, I was, I was, I was, I was flown home. Spent a couple of nights at my nan's, um, and then voluntarily went into a psychiatric ward at Clatterbridge for about two or three weeks. Um, this, is, this, this is back in Liverpool, for those is, that don't know. Yeah, yeah. Clatterbridge Cl- Cl- yeah. is, is, is on the Wirral, but on Merseyside. Um, I went in voluntarily. I, I do seem to remember th- thinking, listen, we think this is for the best. Um, I think I probably would have been sectioned if I'd kind of refused it, but you know, there, there was no point in doing that. And, you know, I, I came through that feeling... A little bit better, um, and and things did improve. You know, for 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 a short time. Liverpool were going for the league as well, so that gave me a little kind of. This was kind of like February March time, um, so that gave me carry you know, and I, you know something to kind of channel a bit of energy into. Um, I, you know, there was no way of going back to Leeds, um, so yeah, so so I finished that course. And, you know, and thought, well, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll go back this September or September after. Always kind of wanted to go back to university and felt that I could, but you know. Obviously, it wasn't the right time back then. Struggled to find some work. Struggled to find work up here. Really. Obviously, didn't have a degree back then. And this girl, Vicky, who um, we had, we had this breakup in the in the the, Feb, the April before. You know, she'd been you know quite supportive and 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 thoughtful and and you know I you know not probably uncommonly in that kind of situation misinterpreted that and thought well, maybe there's still a chance of rekindling that. And obviously, in the hope as well of. Well, I think certainly then there were more jobs in Bristol than there were in Liverpool, so I, so I moved down there for a couple of months in the hope of kind of like trying to make it work down there, but it but it wasn't happening, and by the July I was in a pretty bad place again. Um, I, I got myself a kind of temporary job working processing motor vehicle offences for the Avon and Subasec Constabulary. I think if I'd have ever had a duller, more boring job. Um, <laughs> I had told my grandparents that I was going to go back to university in that September. But as the summer, you know, let's say the summer, May, June, had wore on I, and I just felt the walls closing in again, I just felt too sad and scared to do anything about it. They suggested through someone that they knew, someone in the family, whatever, that um, that I might go to Israel for a bit, which a lot of, a lot of kind of young Jewish people do whether it's going on a kibbutz or any of these kind of youth camps or groups i've never been massively involved in the jewish youth scene but you know, I don't, you know we'd always gone see you know, at least a few times a, you know, a year to, to the synagogue and kept in touch with that and in lieu of anything you know they, they'd obviously said they'd pay for it or whatever i think i think the two options were either go in the israeli army or go on a kibbutz for a bit and i've often kind of said and certainly for a long period of years afterwards i often said oh i should have gone in the army would have done me the world a good toughen me up but to be honest as i've got older maybe in the last Five to ten years, I started to think. To be honest, I don't think it would have made any difference. The way I was at the time, I, it, it, I think what was going to happen would always have happened. So I went on the kibbutz, but literally from. I mean, I actually I can remember driving to the airport with my grandparents, and I could just I could feel myself falling into a black hole, and I I remember always remember having this sense that my nan in particular knew something was badly wrong, and she kept asking, and I couldn't 
articulator. I couldn't say it. And, um, yeah, so, you know, I, I was just spiralling and spiralling downwards. As, as soon as we got there, I basically distanced myself from the entire group, spent virtually the whole time in bed, apart from, like, the little shifts we had to do in some kind of plastics factory there. And uh, and within a couple of weeks, uh, within about three weeks, I tried to kill myself again, this time by by cutting my wrists. Um, the wounds themselves were fairly superficial, although they are still visible on, on both wrists, you know, with, with not too much examination. Again, you know, just to cut off for a second, I've always kind of thought for years, once I've got the money, I'll get them lasered. And But to be honest, the older I get now, I kind of think, I don't know if I will. I don't really see the need or point. It's kind of like it's part of who I am. I, I, I feel no sense of shame or anything about it. That's a really um, interesting way of of thinking about, you know, the, there's, it, God, this is so cringy, but in that, mm. um, that film, uh, The Greatest Showman, they say about your scars and like the scars define who you are. I think and, I, I, yeah. I, I, it's, some people might cringe at that, but I, I, I 100% um, agree with that. Um, so, we, you know, you, you could look at it and say, you know, the, the, it wasn't really a serious attempt because, you know, they, they weren't nothing like as, some, you know, as serious wounds as what they could have been. But one thing to me remains extremely vivid. Even now, 22 years on, and, you know, despite this frankly miraculous future that I'm now living in that I would never ever have imagined never ever have imagined was possible back then at that time I absolutely did not want to live anymore and even you know that's not you know it'd be it'd be kind of easy to kind of, very easy to kind of rewrite history a little bit and say oh it was just a cry for help and it wasn't a cry for help I I, I, I just couldn't I didn't want to live anymore um but after two attempts and I kind of say a half tongue in cheek, but you know, there is a little bit of truth to it. After two attempts, I realized that I couldn't even do that right. You know, and obviously part of it at the time was that, you know, I can't do anything right in life. I can't, I can't hold down a job. I can't hold down a girlfriend. I can't be a good son, grandson, friend, whatever. And I can't even fucking kill myself properly. Mm. And it, and it kind of made me even more miserable, but that kind of settled into a, a kind of fatalistic lethargy. It took me ages to come up with that expression, but I quite, proud of it because I think it's I think it's quite descriptive and quite accurate in terms of, in terms of how I felt at the time so much so that um I mean so my grandparents flew all the way out to Israel to bring me home um and I had a couple of assessments that I remember one at the Royal Liverpool Hospital one at Broad Green um but I wasn't even hospitalized after that because I think they could see that kind of like I was no threat to myself anymore I was just kind of like I just don't care anymore you know I, I, I can't accomplish anything mm. Uh, and I basically resolved then to just sit at home, watch telly, get fat, and wait wait for death. Um, I went a couple of times a week to various uh, mental health, social care kind of support schemes, I suppose you'd call them. One through you know the states, the NHS that was at, based at uh, Newsham Park in in West Derby, and another one through Jewish community care, uh, which one of my, one of my aunts was involved in. Um, my grandparents also paid for uh, private psychotherapy sessions an hour a week with um, a lady close to where we lived up in Chilwell, um, which I do think probably did do some good. You know, and I, as I've got older, and obviously you, you start to talk about these things more. The one thing I always, particularly with lads, you know, you know it, it's hard, but talking does help. And it's really hard to get started and you feel a gobshite doing it. But once you're able to, you will... You're not going to see results overnight. It's not you're not going to click your fingers and by talking about it, everything's better and your life's fixed. 
But getting stuff out of your head and onto into the air, into someone else's ears, onto a piece of paper, whatever, mm. clarifies it in your own mind sometimes. And you can actually realize, all right, it's it's not great, but it's maybe not as bad as your imagination and your psyche in its worst moments tells you um, that it is. How long were you seeing that? With therapist forward. I, I I reckon it was about a year. I I I reckon I reckon it was about twelve uh, about twelve months. And then after a point, she said, "Yeah, it was, well, by the time I finished, I'd I'd started back at uni. So and I was you know I, was, I wasn't out of the woods, but I was you know my life had started to kind of take a more upward um, trajectory trajectory. So for easy you, word to say. So for you, was there actually any point from so you're now about twenty. 23, 22, 23? So the, 21, no, tw- 2021. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, what, what I would say is, I probably should add as well, just for completeness' sake, I was also on Prozac for a while. Mm-hmm. But that really is the only medication that I was ever prescribed. I don't ever remember, you know, lithium or citalopram or there's lots of different yeah. um, medication that people can be given. I'd, in the last 10 to 15 years, I do sometimes use St. John's Wort. I always make sure I've got some in the house if I'm feeling a bit low which basically is kind of like a natural mood lifter. They, 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 they kind of talk, they mm. kind of talk of this. And, and, and I think that has helped me a little bit as well at times. But I think it's a combination of factors help me. Therapy, supporting, loving a family, a, 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 you know, a bit of medication. I think for me, like what's quite interesting is when you hear like yourself telling such a compelling story that you obviously, you'd had such a, a really dark time and but you were able to turn that round and there was for you was there a moment where it was like right okay or was it more more it didn't just happen in one day it happened yeah. quite slowly i mean well i brought what i wrote to you last night in just to kind of like as a little prompt for stuff because yeah. i don't want to get too tongue-tied and what i've written is you know and i think i do th- I, it is right slowly gradually the clouds began to pass in the kind of spring summer of 1998 but if there was one moment and it sounds a daft little thing that kind of that there's one moment when I kind of just remember feeling a real sense of well-being and happiness and kind of optimism. Probably the first time in a long, long time. We would go out with the grandparents maybe once a week, once every other week, go to Southport or to Blackpool or a bit of shopping or this, that and the other. And one time we went to Cheshire Oaks and um, the Verve's album, Urban Hymns, had just come out. And... Um, we don't say there's anything particularly like today, and they, you know, they, they had a few bob, but they were always very keen to teach me the value of money. So I was, you know, I was not one of these kids that would get everything he wanted for Christmas. You know what I mean? And, and obviously now that they're gone, and and I realise why now. Well, the reason why they had a couple of a few quid is because they looked after it properly. But she just bought me that album, or the CD of it, no questions asked, and I, and I, and, I, and it just made me really really happy. So that always kind of stands out in my mind as kind of like. Yeah, the, 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 maybe you know a significant moment when the, when the clouds mm. begin to part. One day that August, um, my grandma rings up and said that she's seen in the Echo that there was still degree places going for that September, in a few weeks' time, at Liverpool Hope University, which was about a 15-minute walk from where I was still living with my dad in the family home in Chilwell. So I took a walk up there, um, managed to get on a, a, a combined honours course in history and IT, and... Even you know, even the you know, I'd the first year, I wouldn't say you know, I enjoyed it, but I still felt very distant from the rest of the kind of student population. I mean, my weight massively ballooned. Like I say, you know, I basically tried to eat myself to death at one point. 
and I was probably close to eighteen twenty stone at one point. Um, but really, you know, it, 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 this time, thank God, it went well. Uni certainly by the second year, I started to become you know integrate a little bit more, make a few friends, go out for a drink occasionally, um, and. Um, in May, June 2001, um, I managed to get my degree, got, got the 2-1, which I had my heart set on. Um, and 18 months later, got the job here at the Liverpool Echo, which which was it always feels like a big turning point for me because having having got that having got that degree, I kind of thought, well, you know, this took this, this is your path to a good career. I, st- I still didn't know, didn't know what, I wanted, what I wanted to be. In my second and third years at uni, I've been working in a call centre in Waverley, just basically like for, you know, Money to go, money match money basically to get to, to go to football. <laughs> Once I'd uh, graduated, I took on a few extra hours while I was kind of you know waiting for to do the next thing, and then kind of you know and then all of a sudden eighteen months had gone by and I was still working there and with the greatest will in the world and it was perfect for me. It was great for students that kind of job because like twenty four hour call centre, loads of overtime, loads of flexibility. But with the greatest will in the world, it's not why you slog your guts out, your guts out for three years at university for, and nowhere near where I was five, six years previously. But I do remember kind of like the autumn of 2002 starting to think, am I going to be stuck here forever? And I'll just briefly tell you about my kind of slightly tortuous introduction into the into the Echo. So I saw a, a job advertised in the Echo, of, of course, for help with their very, very fledgling digital operations. it was then. Back then, there weren't even bespoke Echo and Post websites. It was mm. called IC Liverpool, which was part of the IC network, the Trinity Mirror network of regional websites. And it was a very, very kind of junior role. You know, by this stage, I'm so by this stage, this is I'm 25 by this stage. Obviously, I've got a degree, and it, and in my in my first interview, they, they they did say this is quite a junior role for someone of your age and qualifications and so on. But for me, it was it was a foot in the door. It was it was you know I've always I've always been very media minded. Looking back now, I think it was kind of inevitable to become a journalist. One of my first Facebook profile photos was a photo of me on the back lawn in our little house and. Chilwell Priory Road in the late 80s. And I'm crawling on with a nappy on and there's a broadsheet newspaper on the lawn and I'm turning it to the back page and I can't be any any more than 18 months old there. But from the ages of 9, 10, 11, I was keeping scrapbooks about the football. Even like in a news sense as well, I always remember, you know, not just because of Hills, but there was, seemed to be a lot of disasters in the 80s and I always remember being kind of quite, when, the, when a big news story was happening, just being kind of captivated by it. So, um, it, you know, it was kind of, you know, now it makes a lot of sense, but I had this interview. It was just, for, for my mind, it was a foot in the door and, and probably a foot in the door to sport. So I had the first interview. It went okay. And I, and I got a second interview. Now, the second interview was the Friday. It was Mad Friday, the Friday before Christmas when yeah. everyone goes out. And we were having our works night out that night in the call centre in Wavertree. So the second interview went okay. And he said, right, well, thanks for that. We'll let you know today. So I was like, oh, well, good. At least I won't be stewing over Christmas. Anyway, I never heard anything that day. So, so I went out that night, pretty miserable, thinking, well, that's it, you know, I'm not going to be working for the Echo, I'm probably going to be stuck in this call centre for the rest of my life. And I got pretty horrendously drunk that night and ended up passing out in the bogs in the 80s. Now, if there's one night in the year you don't want to pass out in the, in the bogs in the 80s, it's Mad Friday when you've got only <laughs> once-a-year drinkers. And I was very lucky that the bouncers were dead sound with me, looked after me, found me mates, and, you know, it, I, I didn't get dumped on my arse in an alleyway. But, um, but it was a pretty miserable... Christmas and New Year, because I just kind of thought, well, what's my future now? You know, I'll I'll have to think of something. But I, you know, I had I'd 
I think I'd, I'd applied for the job in early November, so it was like two months by this stage, and I'd absolutely had my heart set on working with the Echo. Anyway, the first Monday after New Year, I thought I'd still not heard anything. I thought, well, you know, I've got to at least get some feedback. So I got in touch with them and said, um, I had this interview. I've not heard anything. What's the score type thing? And they, oh, well, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to you type thing. And um, that, I'm sure that was the Monday. And it, when I finished work at five o'clock on the Friday, I had a missed call from a man I like to refer to as my guardian angel, Steve Harrison. Now He's now a lecturer for John Moore's Union, but he's the man who hired me. And um, said, yeah, we, we could offer you something. And it was, you know, I started on 10 grand. It was a very junior role, but it was a massive, massive turning point. And I look at kind of like the the life I've been you know, lucky enough to kind of build for myself now. And that was one of the real kind of key kind of tentpole moments in making it happen. For you, it's like you've been able to to hold that sort of bearing on being in this in this city, in this place and you do hear that from a lot of people where they say, well, actually, you feel comfortable here. You've, there's a safeness about being in the city that you grew up in because, you know, you you were saying like when you had your dark times, it was, you know, you were having those dark times where you were being in Leeds, you were being in Amsterdam, you Bristol. were in, you know, Bristol and then over to um, out the country as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, do you think there's anything in that? I think having a, you know, having a base, having somewhere you can call home, somewhere you can call home, somewhere that feels home. Mm. And listen, I'm biased, hopelessly biased when it comes to Liverpool. I, you know, people are different here. And maybe because I've lived away a bit, I'm not saying I've got the, you know, the definitive take on it, but I think I've maybe got maybe a more enlightened take on it than someone that's lived a whole life in the city and never lived anywhere else. People are, you know, people are different here. People are a bit, people are more caring. People are more inclined to ask you how you are and, and, and if something's wrong, try to help you with that. You know, I, I don't know if my experience would have been the same if I'd been born in a different city. It's, it's hypothetical, isn't it? But, you know, I, I thank God every day that I was born in this city and I, I would never, if I had a time machine, I would never change that. I mean, I am very biased now because obviously I'm not from Liverpool. I'm from just, I grew up in a really rural part of Northumberland near Newcastle mm. and you know, the, the, there has never been a sense of cultural identity, a city identity than anywhere I've ever lived. I've lived all the way around this country and I've never lived in a place where there is such a strong identity about the city and about who they are and what they are as yeah, well. Yeah, it's, it's a good point then actually, but, but I've always said that, you know, Liverpool has an extremely strong sense of its own identity and part, so, you know, without going up too much on, on the sidetrack, mm. I think one of, one of the reasons why sometimes Liverpool is like sneered at and looked down at, by the rest of the country, is is possibly a sense of envy that we, at a time when we do live in, you know, when a lot of people are struggling for ide- identity, we have such an identifiable one. And, and we're so married to it and so proud of it. And I do think there's a certain sense of envy because of that. But 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 it, just to relate it to my own situation, we talked earlier about how kind of like I basically had these three different lives as a child and how inevitably that meant in late adolescence I had, you know, a massive identity crisis. I think the, once I kind of really became absorbed back into Liverpool, once I started uni again, I think that probably did help me find my own identity when I was kind of still trying to puzzle it out. That's lovely. I think it's so humbling to hear your stories, hear every stories that we hear. It's, you know, and, I, and it, I guess it takes a lot for you to, to share that. I was a bit scared, to be honest, having you know, stayed up all night 
writing this, I was thinking, bloody hell, I've got to even talk about it now. But I'm, I'm glad I have. You know, I think I said to you last night when writing this did feel quite therapeutic. And, you know, we're, I, I do believe we're all put on this, on this planet to try and help each other. Life's hard. Life's unfair. Massively so at times. And I think one of the, you know, if it's all right, I'll just read the last couple of parts that, that, that I wrote that we haven't really got to, but kind of, yeah, I, of and listen, yeah, I'm not yeah. trying to say I'm the guru. I know, you know, this is, this is the only answer you'll ever need because there is no right answers. You know, going back to your previous pods, the, uh, one of the ones I did listen to was Matt Haig. I only discovered his books about three, four months ago. God, if I discovered them 20 years ago, I, <laughs> I wish, well, I wish I had, but anyway. Um, so, you, you know, getting this job, 2003 was the big turning point, I would say. But there have been, and I'm pretty sure there probably always will be, tough times, really tough times, although not, thankfully, as, as severe and extreme as, as back in the late 90s. And, I've, and I, I've accepted and kind of made my peace with the fact that depression, anxiety, panic, stress is something that I'm going to be susceptible to for my whole life. Um, but over time, I, and I think, you know, Everyone has it within them, the capability to, de to develop the knowledge to realize that those shitty, shitty things, when they, when they hit you, they will pass. And you just, and you have to somehow try and find a way of hanging on and riding it out. I've always thought that one of the worst aspects of mental health is its really sly, devious ability to convince you that your temporary situation, your temporary malaise is your permanent reality. And the ability to remember that is really, really important and vital, but also very elusive and really hard to do. And it's, 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 it's like muscle memory. It's like the mind and the brain is like any other muscle in the body. You have to train it. You have to practice it. You're not going to do it overnight, but over time, if you keep doing the right things, there's a, you know, some people think Liverpool banners are a little bit overly wordy and, and high-handed sometimes, but there was one years ago, I think it quoted Aristotle, and it said something like, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an art, but a habit. And it's always struck a chord with me that if you, if you do the right things repeatedly, you'll they'll become second nature to you after a while, but you have to be patient. Um, and, you know, that, but, but that same thing about the, the, the transient nature of mental struggles. The same applies with good times, of course. You know, nothing lasts forever in life, really. And maybe the silver lining for for those of us who do suffer with this is an appreciation of the fragility of happiness and well-being and a sense that when things do go right, having gone badly wrong in the past, you really appreciate it a hell of a lot more because of what's gone on before. You know, I mean, you know, I know I certainly do. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. Thank it's you really for having nice. me. I'm, a, I'm actually, sometimes I listen to episodes and I really can't wait to listen to them back. I can't wait to listen to this back because I know it's going to be special. I hardly ever listen to any of the footy podcasts back, but I might listen to this one back. <laughs> so nice one, Mike. And, and keep up the good work, you and all the, all the team doing this. It's, I think it's a really wonderful, vital thing that you're doing and all power to you. Thank you. If you've been affected by anything you've heard in today's episode, you can get the proper advice you need. We aren't experts, but the Samaritans provide free, confidential support for people experiencing feelings of distress or despair. You can phone them 24 hours a day on 116 123 or visiting thesamaritans.org.uk. 
The Diana Award also provides a crisis messenger service which gives young people 24-hour crisis support across the UK. If you are a young person in crisis, you can text DA for free to 85258. That's DA to 85258.